0: This is the bill kelly show podcast
1: the lcbo has extended their hours of operation uh, amid fears of a looming strike uh they uh, actually uh, could walk out as of midnight on uh, monday uh, here's the here's the deal because uh, we've done segments on this for years now about the situation with the lcbo and variations on this theme about should the government dump the lcbo should it all be privatized the sale of liquor and beer and and, and i've been I think pretty consistent about this, uh, first of all. Uh, no, I don't think the government should dump the LCBO. I think it serves a purpose here. It's a cash cow for the government, for God's sakes. Uh, could they do things a little bit better, more efficiently? Sure they could. And and there should be some pressure on, on the uh, the administration of the LCBO to do that. Uh, so let's, uh, let's put that on the table, first of all. I, I don't think this is a, a, a rationale, as some people have explained, to say, well, let's dump it. That would be stupid. That would really be a stupid thing to do. And frankly, I don't know who's going to be the next premier, whether it's going to be Kathleen Wynne again or Andrea Horvath or Patrick Brown. Uh, I don't think any of them have any intention of getting rid of the LCBO because they look at dollar signs when they look at the LCBO. Having said all that, though, I have uh, over the years had occasion to know a number of people that have worked at various LCBO outlets. And uh, I got to tell you something. um, The workers have got... uh, they got a beef here. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of concern about what's going on. Now, I don't know whether there's going to be a strike next week or not. But uh, there are some issues that need to be addressed here. Uh, and I may be the only person in the media that's going to talk in a supportive manner about what's going on with the LCBO right now. But be that as it may, I, I, I've i talked to the people. I know the issues. I, I I've, I've understood this and I've seen firsthand about some of the things that's going on. So when I bring uh, Smokey Thomas, Warren Smokey Thomas, the president of OPSU, uh, to talk about the issues here, I want you to pay attention to some of this stuff because you may not know a lot of this. Uh, a lot of people think this is just about, well, they didn't want the beer and wine sold in grocery stores, so now they're striking, and, and that's not it. That's not it at all. Ah, uh, Smokey, of course, is the President of Opsu responsible for the uh, the workers at the LCBO. and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly show to bring us an update. Ah, uh, Smokey, how are you doing today?
2: I'm good, Bill, thanks for having me on. And we really do appreciate your objectivity on this and your support. You're very good at it. Well,
1: I''ve been there done that, you know, and like I say, i'm I'm not doing this anecdotally Smokey, because I've known people that have worked uh, there. I've known people that have worked there as they were going through school. and and you know what, if this is a part-time job where you're trying to make a couple of extra bucks, uh, to pay for books or tuition or something, it's it's not a bad gig to have. But I know an awful lot of the people that are working those stores are people that are trying to put bread on the table for their families. And frankly, uh, the 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 compensation they're getting and the way that these guys are having hours and ske- uh, scheduled, it sucks. It's it's terrible. Let's talk a little bit about that.
2: Yes, well, that is uh, probably our biggest concern: quality of life issues. So. The, the LCBO has always had a large part-time component that's been growing over the years. It's now up to eighty percent part-time workers, and you're right; they're, they're the vast the vast majority are people that are trying to make a living and trying to put bread on the table. And you know, the LCBO says, "Well, at least half our part-timers get a thousand hours a year." Well, that says the other half get less, and who can live on a half-time job? And so they and they, the the shift schedules are atrocious. I mean, it's a colossal failure of management. If you can't sit down and figure out some way to schedule a bunch of people to work that kind of makes their life a little better, you know. So, why, one guy, and he, I checked him out, he was telling me the truth. He worked 94 hour shifts in a row, 90 days in a row, four hour shifts, but somebody else was working the other four hours. Come on, it, there, there's got to be some way to schedule better, to make things better, and also a path to a full time job. I mean, in the 905 GTA area, like over half the jobs are part-time precarious work. It's no wonder people, you know, in their mid twenties can't move out of home. It's no wonder people can't buy a house, a fridge, a stove. And I heard an LCBO manager one day at a meeting said, "Well, you know, if they don't like it. They can go find another job." I looked at them and I said, "They would if they could." You tell me where them other jobs are that you know that where they are, and I'll tell my folks go apply for them, and you can start replacing. So. It's a complex kind of a web of a thing that that, um, the premier has it within her power. I applaud the Liberal government on the change in workplaces review. Now, the caveat is they haven't passed it. It's still up for public consultation, debate of what passes at the end of the day. What remains to be seen. But it speaks explicitly about shift cancellations, part-time precarious work, all those sorts of things that are issues in the LCBO as we speak. That we're fighting against and yet the premier like the liberal government runs the lcbo because it's a crown corporation
1: yeah but here's the thing and and i've said this on the program too smokey i've got a problem with this i i agree with you uh you know the the government is i think is well intentioned to talk about this and i think in 2017 it's about time we had a discussion about about the situation of workers right now because it's changed all right it's there was a time when, when you know, the the, the workplace conditions were draconian. People were working nineteen-hour shifts and no compensation and no lunch times and and no benefits. And and of course that changed and things came around and and things were pretty good for a while. But then of course we had the recession in two thousand nine. I'm telling you stuff you already know, but just to remind our listeners, and 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 a lot of people ended up losing their jobs. A lot of jobs that were full time jobs with benefits became contracts or part time jobs like this. And and it's about time that the government said, look, it, people can't get by these days. So we've had discussions right now about about living wages and about working conditions. And I think it's about time to have that again. And and if the government's going to talk that talk, then they should walk the walk. And here's the best example of how they could actually do that. Because out of one side of their mouth, they're saying, yes, we need to be concerned about workers and about compensation and making sure that they have a living wage so that they can provide but on the other hand, they're looking at the LCBO situation and simply washing their hands and saying, well, there's nothing we can do about it. I, I don't yeah. get it.
2: But, and I don't either, and that's part of the campaign called Leaky Leaks, the real stories to put some heat on the,
0: <clears throat> excuse
2: me, on the politicians. And, again, I've been trying to get a meeting with the premier for over two years. She doesn't seem to want to meet with me. And this would be one of the things on my long laundry list of things that workers we represent have issues with or concerns. And uh, but I'd love to sit down and talk to her and say, listen, if you want to be, you want to talk that talk, I applaud it, and I'm publicly giving her credit for, for, for the government doing that. Publicly giving them credit, and I don't give the liberals too much credit too often. But on the other hand, you're right, they gotta they gotta walk the walk here at the LCBO, and it simply is as simple as this for the public. Somebody in Treasury Board or the premier's office phones over, whoever George Selyus reports to, and they say, stop that nonsense. Get a deal that starts to move toward respecting workers. Starts you. You need to find a process because you're not going to fix it overnight on the shift schedules. You know. You know what I mean. You're not going to fix all that overnight. But they need to come to a table and be honest about it. And we're looking for something we can kind of say, listen, because we've had committees with them in the past and they just whitewash it. And, and so there's a trust issue I guess here.
1: But let me. Let me. They got a, a tweet here from one of our listeners who's listening to our conversation here, Smokey, from Jamie. Says that uh, LCBO uh, employees do not make what people think they make. The prices of booze and, and wine do not reflect employees' wage. Let's talk about that for a second. Because people have complained and said, well, if you privatize, uh, the prices go down. And I know there's some studies that indicate that might happen marginally. But what we need to remind our listeners is that when you go and pay whatever it is, whether it's $15 or $35 for a bottle of wine in an LCBO, most of that is provincial tax. It's not going into the pockets of the people that are working there. It's going into the government coffers. We, we need to remind people of that.
2: No, I, and, and that's absolutely correct. Actually, the wages in the LCBO range from $12.90 an hour up to a full-time worker in a lab or, you know, warehouse. They've been there a lot of years making about $27
1: an hour. Yeah, but that so, $27 an hour, let's keep in mind, Smokey, according to the Euro, and the government's own numbers, only 14% of the people that work at the LCBO are full-time.
2: So, exactly. So yeah, that, yeah. we're not
1: talking about a lot of people making good money.
2: No, no, we're not. No, and I think there's this misconception that it's the greatest workplace in the world. Now, people that work there love it. They love dealing with the, you know, dealing with the public. They like the social responsibility aspect. They take their jobs very, very seriously. Yeah, no, but for the private, all the people that want to privatize, I've always said to them, listen, why would the government give up all this money? There's a study out, out of British Columbia about uh, loosening the sale of alcohol and the adverse effects on society. And I'm going I was listening to, to some talk shows this morning talking about it. Went online and read. It. I'm gonna get a copy and read it. Everything we've been saying as a union, in, in partnership with Mad and Sad and Arrive Life, about when you liberalize alcohol sales, there's you got to be cognizant and aware of there's going to be a downside. British Columbia just proved it to be true. And in 2002, the, the government did an alcohol audit, and that's where they study what what it costs society for alcohol consumption versus what they make. And guess what? There's a huge deficit. All the you know they make two billion dollars profits a year, but they spend something like three billion dollars a year on adverse health effects. So the and the evidence shows the more you make it available, the higher the, the higher the cost to society. So all I'm saying is, is this they should they put it in beer, wine, and grocery stores, and I get the convenience thing and all that. But there's also a social responsibility by on the part of the government to not just simply look at it as a revenue stream. So we want them to do another alcohol audit and and take their time and and study it a bit more before they go making political decisions so that, you know, because if you think about this, every announcement they ever made about beer and wine and grocery stores came just before a scandal or just before a long weekend. So I'm saying that LCBO has inadvertently become a political football. And for all the people that say privatization is the answer, I, I would just respectfully disagree with that. And, Bill, you said something, though, about a public debate about work life and all that. I actually have, this sounds a bit strange for a labor guy, but I have a lot of sympathy for small business owners. I know, I, I have friends that are small business owners, and I know they're not rich. So somewhere in all this debate about minimum wages, about everything else, there's got to be uh, small business owners need to have some way, have a t- seat at that table and express their concerns. Because, mo- again, most of them are not rich. I know one fellow, I said, you should close the doors, you're working to pay your worker. And he couldn't raise the prices anymore. So, it, it, do you know what I mean? So, it's there's a whole, the, the debate in society I wish could be reasoned. I wish we could find that sweet spot where people get treated better, full-time work. But also where 98% of business in Canada is small business, so they actually do need to make a living. Well,
1: absolutely they do. They, and, and I I share that sympathy because I know a lot of folks that are running small businesses right now, and and raising a minimum wage, it's, it's going to have an impact on them. We get that, and the government's going to have to do something to help them out. But but you know something, the the LCBO is not a small business, no. uh, and and we have to put things in context. And Smokey, I had the same debate a couple of weeks ago, and the government made the announcement. Well, the I guess it was the Toronto Star that leaked the story that said a couple of the public service unions, uh, were, you know, we're going to get I think it was like about sixteen or seventeen percent raise or something over a period of time. And everybody was all up in arms about that. And I said, "These people make about twenty five thousand bucks a year. What's the big deal? You know, these these are people that that are pushing papers and working in you know, like in the Ministry of Transportation office in Toronto. They're, they're not driving limousines. They're trying to score enough money to you know to take the bus to and from work. They're not highly paid people. And this is the same thing with the LCBO." The, you know, this is a government agency, and it's, uh, it's I get it. It's a crown corporation, but they're making money hand over fist, Smokey. It's not as if you know giving these guys a bit of a raise or being a little more fair with how these th- hours are scheduled is going to break the bank. It's not.
2: No, actually, Bill. If you were to, if every worker there was to work for free, the price of alcohol would not go down. Exactly. If you were, if you were to double their wages, the price of alcohol would not go up. The the wage. I have business leaders actually say to me, no smoke we get it. The wages in the LCBO are simply a roundup number. They're inconsequential. But they mean the, they mean the world to the workers, right? You know, if somebody's used to live in paycheck to paycheck trying to figure out how to pay their energy. You know, 28 years old, I wouldn't mind moving out of my parents' house. And guess what? My parents wouldn't mind me moving out either, you know? So there's a whole – but that broader public debate. But the LCBO, I agree, Bill, and I really appreciate your support, it should be a model employer. And it should be what other employers strive to be. As a business model, it is the envy of the world. It is a fantastic business model, but when it comes to how they treat their workers, they're as backward as they, as they can be. They're stuck way back in the fifties. This group of guys.
1: Well, it's because they can get away with it, and 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 exactly. that's that's the the problem here. That's why, I, I the government's got to step in here, and, and and this is really just a matter of fairness. And and I'm not suggesting that you know people that are working there should be making you know hundred grand a year because they don't, and and that's never going to happen. And I think they know that. But but you know I know as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation Smokey I know people that have worked there for some time and this is their livelihood it's not a hobby for them it's they're not retired and thinking well I wouldn't mind making a couple of bucks to augment my retirement income uh, and and I I know one guy that you know I see him at the Ancaster store from time to time uh, a couple of weeks ago by a hook or by crook I was down in another part of town and I saw him work and I said what are you doing he says well I got to pick up a shift where I can. I can't get enough hours at this store. So, you know, he's up at the other end of town, and he says, you know, it's only two or three hours, but he says, i got I got to make the money. Uh, that's that's a tough way to make a living. And I know that they're not the only ones that are in that circumstance. There are lots of people that are now working two jobs, sometimes three part-time jobs, to try to put a, enough money together to try to pay rent and, and, and put groceries on the table. I get that. But there's an opportunity here for the government to actually do something about all the stuff they've been talking about.
2: Uh, and exactly, and for the public, you know, we want a bargain and collective agreement, not a strike. I've not met one. I've never met a worker anywhere that ever wanted to go on a strike. Who wants to give up their paycheck for strike pay? You know what I mean? So that's like for people thinking, oh, no, they're just going to willfully, you know, force themselves on 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 things. No, that's not the case. Ninety nine percent of contracts are settled without a strike. So the. the and the history in this particular bargaining unit is the employer at the 11th hour, they let go of the most egregious of their concessions. Well, we've made a few chips away at some other stuff along the way. And in the last day, several hours, we, they actually end up getting a deal. But the LCBO does like the increased revenue in, in this sort of uh, this emotional roller coaster here for the workers and some people in the public about whether they're going to go on strike or not. So now they're standing hours. So, you know what, I'm going to say this, go buy now. Go buy now. Stock up. Do it. But go early. Don't be like me. Every every Christmas time, I, only, I my wife does most of the shopping. I only go buy a few things, and, you know, every year I say, I'm not going to leave at the last minute, and guess what I do? And I end up standing in a long line, I keep thinking, why do I do this to myself? So for the people out there, I'd say, go buy early. But, you know, I'm going to ask you to think about something. See if you can find it in your heart to go buy in a real LCBO, and say to those workers, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm, I understand your plight. And I'll bet you a lot of workers going in to maybe you know get an extra bottle of wine for over the long weekend or whatever, or a case of beer or something like that, or a bottle of whiskey. They're probably, you know a lot of those will know somebody that's part time, know somebody that lives paycheck to paycheck, and say you know what, uh, if we can, if you guys can win something here, maybe maybe you can use that as a bit of leverage in the labor movement and and the people with a you know that get interested in these kinds of debates to have further that debate down the road.
1: Are you? Are you even talking? I mean, you know, the the sand's running out of the hourglass right now with the strike deadline coming up right now. Right? Are you at the table? Is there any dialogue oh, yeah. going
2: on? Oh yeah, I know they're they're talking. They, they keep exchanging proposals. No, it's a very dynamic process, and collective bargaining is a process. It really is. It has a life of its own. It's. Um, there's, you know, uh, the interests at the table are also governed by, you know, my folks. I always tell them, put principles before personalities. Try not to get mad, even though sometimes you get mad. But let go of that anger and look at this strictly from a clinical point of view. What's the best outcome we can achieve? And, and we have an elected team right from the membership the union stewards, and, and the division executive. They get elected down the bargaining. But I also support them with a researcher, two professional negotiators, and they're at that table. And they're hammering away. And the government has, uh, they hire, the LCBO hires a lawyer to do their bargaining. And uh, they're trading, I do know, they're trading proposals back and forth to go late into the night, back at it early in the morning. And usually in the last two or three days, if you can catch an hour's sleep here and there, you're doing real well because it really—that's when the pressure is on both parties uh, to, you know, try to avoid a strike or a lockout, and that's when the pressure really is on. And that's generally speaking, is when you get the deal. Now, I don't like that kind of bargaining. I, I prefer it's called interest-based bargaining, where you sit down and actually have discussions about needs and wants rather than demands. But it's uh, but. Something I've been promoting for years. Some places do, but most don't.
1: Well, I, I hope it doesn't happen. I hope they find some way to find a settlement in this whole situation. Uh, I just remember I had a discussion with one of the uh, guys working in the store the other day, and he says, "Look," he says, "I'm making seventeen bucks an hour, part-time wages, and you know, he says I'm trying to pay for this and that and other thing." He says, I, "You close the doors here," and he says, "I don't want to get any money at all." So you know, they want a settlement here. But they're also yeah. looking for a little fairness, and we hope that happens. Uh, Smokey, thanks, as always, for the time today. We'll certainly stay in touch uh, as this develops over the next few days. Appreciate it.
2: Yeah, no, thanks, Bill. And I just says people of Enduro, if there's a deal there, we'll find it.
1: Good. I hope so. Thanks again, Smokey. Okay. Take care. Smokey Take care. Thomas, uh, Warren Smokey Thomas, president of OPSU, uh, of course, uh, overseeing what's happening with the LCBO negotiations right now. Uh, and by the way, let me just – I know we got to run here. Uh, if, connect the dots. If, in fact, they get a settlement, and I hope that they do – Uh, And then you're going to go into the uh, LCBO and get a bottle of wine in a couple of weeks or something, and they say, well, the price has gone up. It's because the federal budget just announced that they wanted more money out of uh, taxes for liquor and alcohol and, and things of that nature. And the province is looking at something like that as well. The money goes to the province. It's not going into the pockets of the people that work there. And keep that in mind. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, though, it's time for the Mayor's Town Hall. We are so pleased to welcome back to the program Burlington Mayor Rick Goldbring, to the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML. Mr. Mayor, good to have you with us. How are you today? It is
3: great to be back, Bill. I'm I'm fantastic.
1: Great. Listen, we're going to open the lines up in a couple of seconds. As a matter of fact, if you want to call now and get into the queue, uh, by all means, we'll go to your calls in a couple of minutes. 905-645-3221. That's our number. 645-3221. Star 9900 is a toll-free number. Email Kelly at 900chml.com and of course on twitter at chml bill Kelly, your tweets your emails your phone calls for burlington mayor rick goldwing and uh, we'll get to your calls in just a couple of seconds uh yesterday you were busy with a a meeting a neighborhood meeting it was and i guess you were it was a listening tour for you essentially uh, i guess talking to community members about what's going to be happening in, uh, in the downtown core in Burlington as far as future growth is concerned. Let's talk a little bit about what you heard last night.
3: Yeah, so Bill, just to set the context, uh, we're, we're reviewing our official plan. In fact, we have a new draft official plan that's out. Um, but we need to really fine-tune the official plan and the certain mobility hubs within the city. And one of those mobility hubs is uh, the downtown. The other three are around our three go stations. So uh, last night was the second of a meeting, second of a, of a series of meetings uh, with interested people about the downtown, and we were discussing last night where height should go in the downtown, where more height and density should go. And the broad discussion was focused around two concepts. One was a concept where uh, there was more mid-rise, low-rise buildings sort of south of Caroline, um, which is sort of the, the, the south part of uh, our, our downtown. In fact, it's the major part of our downtown. Uh, or should we have more height sort of north of Caroline? And it was interesting last night. I thought the obvious conclusion would be um, we should have more height away from the more intimate area of our downtown, away from the city hall area, and have it up uh, more up the street. Um, but that wasn't necessarily the strong majority view. It was a, probably a majority view, but it wasn't an o- overwhelming majority view. Uh, and I guess I was impressed by the discussion that uh, the groups were having—real thoughtful discussion about all the factors that need to be considered when you're planning a downtown and when you're redevelop, doing redevelopment in a downtown about the importance of uh, uh, wider sidewalks and the importance of walkability you know walkability, importance of transit, uh, the importance of, of retail, the importance of office, the importance of design uh, of buildings in the downtown. So uh, it was a very positive discussion. About 80 people were there last night participating, which is a good number. Uh, and I must say, I was impressed by the dialogue we had. Uh,
1: it's it's an interesting downtown, and and it's it's got its challenges, obviously. But it's there's there's something about Burlington that I, I just find fascinating, and I mean that in a very positive way. Uh, and and let's look at the main street there, where City Hall is located, of course. And, and it's gone through some changes, of course. You know, years ago, and you were just a young gaffer, of course. There was a movie theater just a couple of blocks up from you there, and that so those things have evolved and changed. But the streetscape hasn't changed dramatically, but I, I guess one of the things that you've been talking about over the last number of years is it's inevitable that things are going to happen, and, and not just in Burlington, but in every city. We, we, the mantra here is we can't really go out anymore. We're going right. to start going up. So there's going to be height. It's going to happen, and, and and the discussion needs to happen about how is this going to happen, not whether or not it's going to happen, because it's, it has to. People are going to want to live in Burlington. They're gonna, people that aren't there now are going to move to that city because it's a great city. And they're going to say, "Look, I, I, I need accommodation like this, and we, we need to go up. How are you going to do it? Where it's going to go, and what's what's it going to look like? That has to be part of it too.
3: No, oh, exactly. I, and uh, that's a big part of our mobility hub workshops that that we're we're doing is trying to define. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the Gardner Expressway and
1: look at all the Gardner and, and all those condos that you see going up almost daily around and you know Toronto and that part of town near their waterfront. And the glass and the steel and everything. And then you look at the architectural styles around Burlington, and, and it's 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 sensational what you've got on the main Drag. You go about a block or two either side of that, and you've got these wonderful historic buildings, almost Victorian buildings in some cases like this. And, and you want to make sure that whatever's going to happen there is going to blend in with that. It doesn't necessarily have to look exactly like that, but you don't want it to clash with it, do you? No, exactly.
3: And uh, I've used the comment are the terminology that I really love the urban intimacy that is in our downtown. Um, It it has a nice feel to it. It has a nice community feel to it. Certainly there are some, some taller buildings, um, but it has a nice, it's comfortable. It's a very comfortable downtown Mm -hmm. to walk around and we want to maintain that. And the challenge is how do we do that with all the forces that we have on us? How do we harness in a positive way um, the tremendous interest there is for people to live in downtown Burlington and for, developers to develop downtown Burlington. So uh, our staff are going to be busy over the summertime. Uh, I'm impressed with the engagement that they're proceeding with, and there's going to be sort of coffee shop discussion throughout the next three or four weeks in different locations within the downtown so that people can just go in to these locations and talk to our staff and have, have a coffee and talk about some of the issues one-on-one. Uh, but our staff is going to come back to us in September with some sort of broad outline of a direction that, that we should be heading in.
1: Now, I know there are some specific projects, and you and I have talked about some of them on the program over the last couple of months, uh, about uh, proposals for the downtown area. And I know this wasn't pro- project-specific last night. It was more talking about a, a, a growth on a conceptual basis and uh, what you'd like to see happen in this. But but uh, do you do you get into the nitty-gritty about this, about... About you know where people are going to live and what they want to see, etc. I mean you know you talked about where you'd like to see the height. Yeah. Uh, my my impression would have been just from I know about the Burlington streetscape. I, I'd like to be right downtown. I mean if I were going to buy a condo down there, yeah. I, I'd want to be right across from City Hall. I'm not advocating for the one that's being proposed, by the way. But you know I, uh, there's City Hall. You know the waterfront's two blocks away. The art center's just a couple of blocks away. I mean everything is uh, is right there where you'd want it. And and when you look at the, the patterns, uh, Mr. Mayor, in other cities, that seems to where people are gravitating. They want to be where I don't need to get in the car and travel 15 minutes to get to where I want to go. I want it to be right downstairs. Yep, no, I,
3: absolutely. People want to be have that walkable uh, neighborhood to live in. They want to be able to walk to all the amenities, as, as you mentioned, Bill. And uh, so if you, if you stretch it out, you sort of lose some of that intimacy and you lose some of that walkability. So there is certainly a strong case was being made uh, last night. I sensed it was not a majority position, but a strong case was made for what exactly you're saying, is that there should be more uh, density within the, within the downtown. You know, I guess it, a lot of people don't necessarily dispute that, but I guess it's the challenge is how do we do it? How do we do it? Can we do it with more mid-rise as opposed to high-rise? If we're going to have buildings greater than 11 stories, well, how tall should they be? What should they look like? In fact, next week we are dealing with some tall building guidelines for buildings more than 12 stories because you prefer a more narrow uh, 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 podium and then a tower, and you want that tower to be more narrow. Um, to sort of preserve some of the views around the tower. One of the things we heard last night is the importance of being able to look down Brant Street, uh, to look down Elizabeth Street, to look down John Street, and see that openness to the lake. So that's another consideration that, that is all part of, the, uh, part, part of the discussion.
1: But you have to find that balance, don't you? Uh, yep, you, you do. Don't, you don't want this to be like Bay Street in Toronto where you never see the sun. Uh, you know, even on a beautiful day, you just don't see the sun because the buildings are that tall and there are so many of them right now that, that you're constantly walking around in the shadows of those buildings. I mean, you st- you still want to allow for for natural light. There's there's a lot that goes into a planning process like this. You know, the devil is in the details. Yeah. And, and,
3: and we can come up with the best policies in the world and, and a great official plan and a secondary plan for these areas. But it's how we execute and you know there may be some merit to having a taller building in certain locations where we would prefer more mid-rise but as long as you have control over how many buildings and where they're going to be and you don't lose control because the, one of the concerns we have is that if we approve a certain height and density at a certain location does that mean right across the street or right across the block we have to give the same permissions to another developer so all of those things have to be sorted out and they will be sorted out and i'm looking to for I'm looking forward to the report that our staff are bringing us in september
1: okay there was one project uh, specifically though that it uh, seems to be moving along right now that's this is the waterfront hotel that we talked about a few weeks ago where's the, where are they with that now
3: so so as we mentioned bill when we talked on on your program a few weeks ago Um, there is a clear process that has been defined about how any redevelopment on the waterfront hotel site should take place. And uh, there has to be a significant amount of public engagement before, in fact, there's a specific development application, which is unusual. Usually you have a specific development application, and then you have the the discussion. So we've been having generative discussion with the community and the developer, for that matter, uh, about what should go there. Um, A lot of people don't want anything to go there uh, because of the unique nature of the site. It's a premier site right at the foot of Brandt Street, right right, uh, adjacent to Spencer Smith Park. In fact, Spencer Smith Park sort of uh, encapsulates uh, the -hmm. hotel site. Um, So there's a lot of people who don't want to see anything there. Uh, There's people that may be tolerant of some development, but they want to see more mid-rise than than high-rise. Uh, and then you have the owner of the property who at the, one of the public sessions, uh, he had a drawing, sort of a very rough drawing done by uh, one of his, his team members uh, that uh, showed us a 35-story uh, and a 40-story building on a 1.9-acre site.
1: Well, that caught your attention. That
3: certainly caught our attention. <laughs> um, but, you know, this is a, this is a challenging site. Uh, It's a premier site, it's unique, it's right on our waterfront. And what we've heard through, not so much about the specific project of the waterfront hotel site redevelopment, but in broad terms, what we've heard from people looking at our downtown, they look at the area south of Lakeshore Road as being sacrosanct and protecting that area from development. And this site is in that sacrosanct, sacrosanct area. So how do we deal with it? It's privately owned property, uh, the developer or the owner certainly has a right to put in an application for redevelopment. So this will unfold
1: as it will. Remind me, it's been a couple of uh, months since I've been there. How big is the hotel now? How many stories do you remember? Seven stories. All right, and of the, 122 rooms. And and one, and it's not the proposal, but one of the things being floated right now would be four times that size. Uh, ah, yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. So that's okay. Uh, that that's rather interesting. Uh, you got to wonder about the financial viability of actually having a hotel that big in that location. Well, wouldn't we, I, I, it, I don't, it be I don't think it would.
3: I, I don't know about the specifics what uh, the owner has in mind, um, but uh, living it, it would space be, I could it see it would be predominantly residential.
1: Yeah, because uh, we've seen some of that growth, and there's certainly a desire because this is not the first proposal. Uh, you've had for, for high-density uh, applications right down by the waterfront.
3: Well, we have one under construction right now, yeah. and that was approved 20 years ago, and we've looked at that as sort of a premier development uh, and uh, a benchmark development that we shouldn't see buildings that tall in the area because it's 22-story condominium. Uh, An eight-story Marriott autograph collection hotel uh, as well as a seven-story condo with lots of public amenity space. So that is south of Lakeshore Road. That was approved 20 years ago. I believe that will be a positive addition to the waterfront. But do we want any more of that type of development on the waterfront?
1: When you have a development like that, and and let's look at what you mentioned 20 years ago. Let's look at what's happened to to the park and to your waterfront, to, to Spencer Smith Park, for instance uh do you want this development then to to be complementary to what's going on there in other words you know the you, you think of things like green space and and making it uh you know flow it, not just uh, from the the building style itself but of course the amenities and the landscaping and things of that nature uh, you don't want it to stick out and, and and actually contrast with what you've already done on the waterfront with the pier and everything else do you
3: no, it, it, exactly. It has to fit in. It has to fit in. Um, but it, it, it,
1: we're going to have more meetings the first week
3: in July. There will be more discussion and, and uh, uh, engaging people and having discussion and, and uh, doing charrette workshops uh, about defining what it could look like, uh, redevelopment on the Waterfront Hotel site. So the process uh, will continue. A- and at the end of it, the, um, the process should generate a couple of uh, proposals and the developer can certainly bring in a proposal and staff will work with they, what they've been given and, and come up with a recommendation for council.
1: It's an interesting time uh, when you look at development. And, and I know that some people shudder when they hear words like intensification and some of the things that are being proposed in cities like Burlington and Hamilton. I mean, the you know about the debate that's going on about the, some of the developments down by our waterfront around Pier 8 and some of the other things and and not everybody is on side with this and and i guess that's understandable that's always going to happen but but if you want to look at this as the glass is half full this is a a wonderful opportunity uh for cities to develop their waterfronts and and do this i mean some of them have already made mistakes and 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 the developments are there and and you know there's not much they can do about this but this is a great opportunity for what we know now and maybe i'd like to think that we have better planning initiatives and better concepts about planning uh, to take full advantage of the waterfront and to, to marry those two ideas about development and at the same time, same time rather maintaining uh, you know, things like green space and obviously views to the water and things of that nature.
3: No, exactly. I, I agree, Bill. We've got to really um, – we have these opportunities. We have limited opportunities along our waterfront. We have to make sure we, we're very thoughtful and what we decide uh, should, should go in the available space that we have. Uh, but we have to recognize, though, that once it's gone, it's gone. And, uh, you know, we, d- we, we want to maintain as much control of our waterfront for public access as we can.
1: We've always talked about intensification, about certain projects that are happening in the downtown and the waterfront area. But when you look at the, the greater picture here of, of what's going on in Burlington, are there other areas that are being identified right now? For some of these high-rise developments uh, that, that aren't necessarily downtown.
3: Oh no, absolutely, absolutely. I mentioned at the outset that uh, our official plan is going to be focusing on uh, growth in our uh, around our mobility hub areas, which includes downtown, but also includes the Aldershot Go area, uh, the Burlington Go area, and the Appleby Go Station area. And that whole that those are our primary intensification areas, and then the area connecting those the Plains Road-Fairview Corridor are secondary growth areas. So f- only 5% of land within the city of Burlington is really destined to see major change over time. Uh, 50% of our land is, is rural in the, in the Greenbelt. Uh, Thirty. Let me see if I get the numbers right. 11% is employment land. 34% is our traditional neighborhoods that we want to uh, maintain as is, more or less, uh, going forward. So it's really only 5% of the city that is destined to have some significant change going forward.
1: Let me do a break. We're going to come back in a couple of minutes as we continue. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
0: on AM 900 CHML.
1: With the Mayor's Town Hall, Burlington Mayor Rick Goldring is here on The Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML. Uh, your questions for the Mayor, 905 645 nine start 9900. Uh, email bkelly900chml.com and on Twitter at chmlbillkelly. We'll go to calls and questions uh, in a couple of seconds. Uh, let me let me ask you about this. You're uh, sitting on the board, of course, for AMO, which is the Association of Municipalities of Ontario, and that's uh, basically the councillors and mayors of of all the cities here in this province getting together and talking policy and and shared concerns. And it's it's been a very effective body over the years. And uh, you talk about issues uh, that are are I guess shared by an awful lot of us. And one obviously is the infrastructure deficit, and, and we're looking for solutions right now. And and one of the things that I, I give AMO credit for is they don't just sit back there and say, okay, provincial government, fix this for us. I mean, you guys are proactive, and you've come up with some ideas.
3: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. For the last two years, a tremendous amount of research has been done trying to quantify exactly what the issues are across the province of Ontario and looking at it province-wide, not not individual cities but in aggregate uh, province-wide because there are 444
1: municipalities in the, in the province of Ontario. Ontario and that, that's a unique situation when you think of that though mr. mayor because uh, you know you've got Wawa Ontario and you've got Burlington Ontario and Hamilton Ontario uh, and some of them are shared questions and values we get that but very different perspectives on some of these issues simply because of their circumstances
3: very different perspective and, and you know it's interesting Hamilton has our challenges Burlington has our challenges uh, but we're growing. And people want to live in our communities. Uh, there's a lot of communities in the northern part of Ontario that are seeing population declines, and are really squeezed because their tax base has been eroded because of a change in industry, but also a change in population. But they still have the same infrastructure that they have to maintain.
1: Well, how do you and how do you come up with policies like that? And maybe one of the most glaring examples I saw uh, was uh, back in the 1990s when uh, Premier Harris was running the province, and and they came up with the downloading idea. You know, in other words uh social service cost we're going to upload all the uh, the education cost and, and download all the social service costs and it's going well, to be revenue neutral we uh, I don't want to get into that but i remember going to the AMO meeting which was in toronto that year and and by then it was a year after they announced the policy and and cities like toronto and burlington and hamilton and windsor and, and kingston were livid about this because it put there a huge financial pressure on their cities because of of having to absorb all those social service costs uh, but cities, it's smaller towns up in northern Ontario that essentially had little to no social service costs, it was a it was a, a windfall for them and they're cheering this guy. Wait, go, Mr. Mr. This is fun. <laughs> and the other the all the, the city representatives from all these major cities are saying you I don't want to repeat what they were saying, but two very different ideas. I mean, when a, in a policy like that happens, so it's 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 great that everybody's together and everybody's talking about this, but it's pretty hard to get consensus on some of these things. It is
3: impossible, I would say, to get 100% consensus on some of the issues. And you know, right now after after 2 years of work, Amo was done analysis about the tremendous funding gap in the province of Ontario that's about five billion dollars that is the gap over the next ten years that that municipalities uh, either have to increase their property taxes at eight or nine or eight or nine percent a year for ten years to address the infrastructure gap and the service gap or we look at other sources of revenue and Amos done a, a, a a serious analysis of other sources of revenue and looking at the Toronto tax tools because Toronto Special, the largest city in the province, and they have a land transfer tax and they, they are allowed to put in some other, other uh, taxes as well. Um, but the long and short of it is, after all this analysis was done, they said, okay, what tool, what tool can be used in the province of Ontario that is as close to possible being fair for all the municipalities across the province of Ontario? And the conclusion was a 1% increase in the HST, which with having that money specifically allocated to municipalities directly for infrastructure. That was the conclusion they, they came to. It uh, wouldn't fill the $5 billion gap, but it would go a long way of, of filling half of it, $2.5 billion. And uh, so we're asking AMO members right now, the AMO board, to to think about it, to try the idea on and see how it works. I'm intrigued by the idea uh, because it does take the pressure off property tax increases and property taxes, as we know, are regressive and they hit uh, the people that can't afford it the most. It hits them harder and this way we have an opportunity to spread it out on purchases of goods and services as opposed to specifically increasing property taxes again. And,
1: and I know that the part of the pushback is going to be well we don't want any tax increases at all I, yeah we've I, already I, had
3: that from someone remembers yeah so.
1: and I get that okay but the problem is is if you don't do it then as you say the only other alternative you've got is to w- increase property taxes and and that's the most regressive t- form of taxation of course because it's not based on ability to pay it's simply based on okay, here's your property here's how much we we have to f- to spend this is your share. Uh, at least income taxes based on how much you make, uh, and HST. As much as you may you know not want to see an increase in that, uh, it's it's a it's a pittance as compared to what the impact would be if you didn't uh, let's, uh, didn't have to put it on property tax. So th- th- there's a balance here. I mean, nobody's going to like the idea of raising taxes, but you have to ask yourself, okay, where's the money going to go, and and you know how is it going to be effective because. The biggest complaint we always hear, and you've heard this in all the years you've been in public life, is if you raise taxes, for instance, a 1% increase to the HST, government's just going to blow it on something else. They're not really going to dedicate it to this. We saw that with the tire tax years ago. There's been a list of things, Mr. Mayor, where they said that with dedicated taxes, and it never works out. So I, the, the question I guess a lot of folks are going to ask is why is it going to be working this time when it hasn't in the past?
3: Well, that, well, that's a great question. And, and we got a long way to go assuming that this is even implemented because yeah. who knows whether the, what the chances yeah, well, in are. we're the hypothetical uh, here. But given the hypothetical, there has to be accountability as to how the money's used. And uh, Nick Nanos has done some polling uh, for AMO uh, three times in the last uh, 18 months. And the polling has been pretty consistent. Uh, changes a little bit over the last 18 months, but uh, it, it, it's been consistent that a majority of people surveyed would support the increase in HST by 1% if it was going exclusively for infrastructure for municipalities. So we'd have to come up with a system that's clear and, and accountable that people would understand, uh, in fact, that the money was used for what it's supposed to be used for.
1: There are other t- vehicles to, d- to use. I, I get that. And I know that some American cities, for instance, uh, have been granted the, uh, the, the possibility uh, through their charters to actually have a a, a local tax increase in other words they can they can have a a surcharge tax a one percent or two percent tax some cities in the states have done that to build new stadiums and things of this nature much to the chagrin i guess of some of the taxpayers but that's localized and that can still be rather onerous this this would be a province-wide thing
3: it would be province-wide so hamilton doesn't have to worry about what burlington's doing or burlington doesn't have to worry about hamilton's doing it is uh it would be province-wide, and Amos came up come up with a formula that would uh, allocate the funds in a certain way um, to try to be as fair as possible to municipalities and all the different locations around the province, but also all the different sizes and circumstances of, of municipalities. So at this stage, uh, we want to have a dialogue within the municipal sector and and talk about it, and, and we, I'm encouraging uh, mayors and chairs and counselors to to try it on before you dismiss it, to try it
1: on. Uh, and by the way, there's there's a valid argument for this, too, because what cities have always looked for is consistent funding. I know governments will say, oh, no, no, you, you can come to us for money. But, I mean, a lot of the programs that they initiate uh, have sunset clauses on them. In other words, they're only for like a year two years or something like that. And, and cities should be planning 5, 10, 15 years into the future. I know that's what the city of Burlington is trying to do right now. And it would be a lot easier to do that if you knew that there was a consistent funding uh, formula and a funding base from the province, and for the feds for that matter, that you know you could tap into for some of that stuff.
3: We are one of the few jurisdictions in the world that does not have any form of sales tax or income tax going to municipalities. 25 of the American states out of the 50 American states have, in fact, um, municipal sales taxes that gives the municipalities uh, revenues and takes the pressure off the property tax system.
1: start 9900. Your questions, your comments for Burlington Mayor Rick Goldring here on the Bill Kelly Show at 900 CHML. Dan, thank you for holding on. How are you this morning? I'm
0: good. Good morning, Mayor. Uh, Thanks for taking my call, Bill.
3: You're most welcome.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Hamilton, we have a real problem with telephone poles and posters. And when I drive through Burlington, I don't see a poster on a telephone pole. Mayor, how do you do that? (laughs) And can you please help Hamilton figure it out? And maybe we can start having a clean city here, with free of posters. Your city is great. There's no posters on any polls. I've never seen
3: them.
1: I'll, I'll let you go, Dan, and I'll let the mayor respond to that. A great question. Thanks so much Thank for being you, a part of brother. the show.
3: Well, that's great. I mean, that's good to hear that we're doing something right there with the telephone poles and having no posters on them. Um, We have signed bylaws in the city, and our our bylaw department uh, enforces them. Uh, We get complaints about uh, some of those signs that go up uh, promoting different products and services at different times of the year that are just sort of tent signs, and they go up, and our staff... Uh, often takes them down so but as far as I'm concerned I I don't believe we see very often anybody trying to put a poster on a telephone pole it just doesn't happen in Burlington for whatever reason I can't explain it but it doesn't happen
1: well because they know they're not supposed to but I mean we've tried in the city time and time again Dan to your point uh, to institute bylaws like this and sometimes a, a watered down version of it will go past city council but then, as soon as somebody decides that they're going to do this anyway, and they're going to put signs, for instance, there were, at one point we had a bylaw here that said uh, you can't stick those signs on, on on traffic islands. Okay, you shat you shack through that. It's against the people do it anyway, and then either the person that put them in there complains to their local councillor, and this well, that's an upstanding business person here, and they have the right to advertise. And, well, yeah, I know, but this uh, a beautification question here. That goes on and and oftentimes they simply acquiesce and say, "Okay, well, we'll let it go <laughs> and I see this happen every weekend in Burlington, where you see these little signs stuck there on the on the traffic islands, you know or even in the the little garden areas you know between lanes that's not supposed to be there, or th- to Dan's point, they start p- taping these signs up about you know there's a garage sale or hey, there's a mattress sale over at some place uh and and it you know the, there's a visual pollution of this, and i'm listen, I'm all for free enterprise. But the city has to be consistent about this. And, and to your point, no bylaw is going to be any good at all if it's not enforced. Exactly. And, and that's, that's really the key, isn't it? To call that, that number that says, you know what, Mr. Mattress Sale Guy, you can't advertise here. Take the signs out, or we've already taken them out, you know, whatever the case might be. It depends on how proactive they want to be. But, uh, but th- that really is, is what it comes down to, is simply having some standards and adhering to them. Yeah, and enforcing as best you can, Exactly. Has to happen. Great question. And uh, you're you're absolutely right. And we have had that happen in Hamilton uh, with 30 par- third-party signs. Remember those big mobile signs that you come right, up there and right. you'd go on Upper James and Hamilton or some of these other streets and there was just one after another after another. And, and after all, it, he's right, it becomes an eyesore. And uh, you always wonder about this, and and I don't have a problem, by the way, because somebody's going to say, "Well, come on, I want to have a garage sale on this Saturday at my place. I got to let people know." I'm okay with that. Yeah, we overlook that sort of stuff. But when the garage sale's over at four o'clock, go and get the sign. Don't leave it up there for four weeks after that, because that's that's part of the pollution that we've talked about. Six four five thirty two twenty one star nine nine hundred. We have had an issue here in the city, Mister Mayor, and I'm not going to ask you to to comment on on Hamilton politics and some of the controversies here. But Phil writes uh, on email at uh, bkelly 900 com. please ask the mayor what the city of Burlington's policy is with regards to mo- outdoor music on patios and restaurants. And, and you know the controversy that's ho- happening right now. Uh, there was an injunction filed with the OMB about uh, the patio bylaw that Hamilton is trying to move forward on here, and it looks like there won't be music on outdoor patios. Uh, this year, after all, I know there's been some examples and some discussion about that. What does the city of Burlington do, and how do they handle this?
3: Uh, we've had lots of discussion about uh, about patios and, and music, and and one of the key is keys is the level of ampl- amplification and the hours. And uh, you know, typically, for example, our sound. And so music,
1: first of all, you do it. You do we, allow it. We we
3: do it. It's really controlled, but we 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 do allow it. Um, and it's the level of amplification um, that it, it has to be, you know, really quite, quite moderate. Um, so yeah, so we do allow it. Um, and, uh, but there's been times when it's, it got out of hand in the past and we had to, we had to control it because people live downtown as well as, as well as entertain themselves downtown. So we have to find a balance. And I think we found it.
1: And, and again, it comes down to adhering to the bylaw and, and making sure the bylaws are enforced.
3: Exactly, and I must say, our, our restaurant owners are very uh, responsible and very thoughtful, and uh, uh, they want to work with the city as opposed to work against us.
1: What do you think of this idea of these pop-up patios that we're seeing in, in, in communities right now?
3: We've got two of them on Brandt Street,
1: Yeah,
3: uh, and I think they're they're fantastic. Uh, we've got two of them. Now, I'm not sure how you define pop-up patios. We define them as sort of semi-permanent structures that are up for the summer season. Yeah, yeah. So they've taken up a parking spot. Yeah, our, our, or a couple our two, spots, yeah. Or two. And I believe they really enhance the downtown in the summertime. Uh, people love sitting outside and enjoying themselves. And uh, yeah, we have two on Brand Street, and I think they're working out uh, very well. It's a pilot, still in a pilot stage. We have a pop up pop up see, I can't even say it pop up patio pilot going on <laughs> uh, right now. Love the
1: alliteration. And
3: uh, so far, so good.
1: Yeah, it's it's fabulous, and uh, we tried a couple of them here in Hamilton last year, although. Uh, they decided we weren't going to serve alcohol on them, and I never could quite understand that. But uh, our, I mentioned our daughter lives in Barry, and, and we go up there for dinner the odd time, and 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 the main drag right down by their waterfront. Of course, there's a there's a, a number of them there, and I think it's fabulous. It's great for the community, and and I mean, there's always going to be somebody who's going to complain and say, "Well, you'll, you'll lose some parking spots or this or that," or it doesn't matter. There's you know, there's a, there's an atmosphere that's created. We
3: have to look at our streets as something else than just moving cars. Right, we yeah, want we yeah. to look at really complete streets where they're they you know you, where you accommodate cyclists, you obviously accommodate cars appropriately, but you animate them. Certain streets in your downtown areas, and you make them really sense. You give them a sense of place, and you encourage people. Uh, you try to have sticky streets as well as complete streets. You try to have sticky streets, which means that. It's really desirable to, to be on a certain street. You don't want to necessarily leave it. Uh, you want to stay there and enjoy whatever it has to offer. So when you look at these pop-up patios, that's something else that is offered uh, on our desirable streets and gives people the opportunity to connect with friends and co-workers and neighbors uh, and family. Um, no, I, I support it 100%.
1: Now, you get a nice day like we've had over the last couple of days here and to sit up there at lunchtime and and, uh, and have a, a cold drink or a cup of coffee or something and just enjoy the weather while you're, you're, you know, having your lunch or something like that, I think is a great idea. And it, it actually saves the business a lot of money because they don't have to go through the capital costs of actually building an outdoor patio, which may or may not be viable depending on which part of the city they're in. And you were just talking earlier about large sidewalks and things of that nature. Well, if the structure and infrastructure is already in there, the chances... Of actually building those lovely wide sidewalks that we'd all like to see just don't happen. So let's take up some of that other space, which may be on the road, but you know that's it's it's, it's actually to enhance the community, and enhance the experience. I, I I think it's a great yeah, idea. Right.
3: Our downtowns are we want to make them people places. Yeah, and make them very attractive for for uh, for people to congregate
1: in and people to connect
3: in and people to enjoy. And pop up patios
1: contribute to that greatly. Good stuff. Thanks for the uh, the call on uh, the question on that one. I really do appreciate it. 905-645-3221, nine hundred. 9900. Got a little bit of time left. Let me get uh, Don into the conversation here. Hi, Don. Welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Good. Go ahead for the mayor.
0: Well, uh, just uh, wanted to compliment him on a uh, great job. We live in Burlington, Hatt, for uh, going on 40 years almost, uh, et cetera, and we'll watch the city uh, become very vibrant, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there's only one, I guess, one little downfall that I can find anyways is the, uh, uh, the amount of expense that we've uh, in Burlington uh, uh, paid to uh, uh, reduce the uh, speed limits and posted all of these signs, 40 uh, kilometers an hour maximum, etc., all over the city and speed onto the um, uh, expense of uh, uh, these speed bumps. And unfortunately, uh, nobody pays attention to uh, either the speed limit or the, the speed bumps, or the and then they just continue on. And I'm getting a little uptight about and upset about uh, going on either Branch Street or Walker's Line at 65 kilometers an hour and getting people honking at me and passing me and uh, uh, etc. And you can't blame the um, uh, the police because uh, they're to the limit. Um, I talk to them, and uh, they say that uh, the. Uh, Uh, The amount of uh, uh, coverage that they have uh, to do is uh, really stretching them, so you can't really blame them. And, uh, you know, I I drive all over the city of Hamilton, uh, et cetera, and some of the speed bumps that they have there are much more effective than than, uh, the ones in Burlington.
1: Okay, i got to jump in here, Don. I'm going to let the mayor respond to that. We're just really tight on time, so thanks so much for the call. Go ahead, Mr. Mayor.
3: I I remember as a ward counselor, is probably the number one issue I heard over the years was uh, was people speeding in in neighborhoods and it tends to be the people that live in the neighborhoods that speed in the neighborhoods. So uh, we work with the police. Uh, We have our traffic department uh, that looks at different streets when there's issues that people point out and we do our best to come up with a strategy to uh, calm the traffic. Now, um, it doesn't always work as effectively. and I think you know we look at it, we analyze the effectiveness of our the implementation of certain tools. and uh, most of the time we are able to make an impact, but not with everybody. The police do a good job of uh, trying to enforce and they really, uh, do a good job, particularly on the on the more major streets, the bigger arterial roads, because that's where they catch people who will be speeding in the local neighborhoods, but they try to catch them in the school zones and on the major arterial roads. But it's a coordinated effort between the police and the transportation department of the city.
1: Appreciate the calls. Uh, Sorry for the uh, folks we couldn't get to today, but uh, time is a little bit tight. Uh, that's why we always encourage you to call in the early part of the program. Thanks so much for the time. I'll see you next week. We're going to be out, of course, at the RBG. Area Economic Summit. Yeah, that'll be on Tuesday, and we'll be broadcasting live from there. And, of course, you'll be one of the guests on that. We look forward to that.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.